Hi, my name is Aubrey Ann Jackson, and you're listening to First Line. I'm a student doctor in my third year of medical school, and I'm here to bridge the gap between sophisticated doctor talk and oversimplified patient education to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person body, mind, and spirit. I completed an underserved rotation and we had to practice asking our patients questions that that were more related to their social needs. So I would ask every single patient I would see if they're worried or concerned that in the next few months they might not have stable housing. I would ask them about the place where they live if there's any problems like bug infestation, lead paint, that their smoke detectors aren't working, that there's water leak, that there's mold. And I would ask if they would put off going to the doctor because of distance or transportation. Then I would ask if the electric, gas, oil, or water company threatened to shut off their services. So these are really important questions. Like if they had children, if it's difficult to work because of problems getting childcare, if they ever worry about having enough money to pay for bills, I would ask them, does anyone, including family members, physically hurt you? If anyone's ever threatened them harm? And of course, for a lot of these, if you have a yes answer to one, you will probably have a yes answer to another. And I I would ask them how often that happens, never rarely, sometimes fairly often, frequently. And thank goodness I didn't have anyone answer either the fairly often or frequently. It was limited to rarely or sometimes. But it just occurred to me that I can ask all my patients these questions and if they have even a little bit of an affirmative answer, I'm able to ask them if they need any help with anything and try to refer them to a shelter if they need it for help, maybe just even a phone number in case things get worse and they feel unsafe in their home. But this is really, really powerful and it's a role for physicians that we don't normally think about having. So that has really been eye-opening for me. Most of the diagnoses we learn about in medical school have both a genetic and an environmental component. The genetic component is what we see demonstrated with twin studies and identification of genetic mutations like single nucleotide polymorphisms or heritable traits that we can see run in families. Wealth also has the potential to impact the environmental side, though wealth is just part of environmental factors. If you are poor, that limits yourself a lot to the amount of resources that are available to you, but it's only one of the environmental factors. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that you have poor health outcomes. So we cannot compare directly wealth with health, though it is definitely a factor. In my rotation, we talked a lot about vulnerable patient groups and underserved groups. And off the top of your head, you're probably thinking about different socioeconomic groups. Those in poverty, those in middle class versus those who are wealthy. Then you might think of urban versus suburban versus rural and how both rural 
and urban communities have their own set of issues. But some other groups that are vulnerable that we don't usually think about can include victims of intimate partner violence. They're not necessarily a visible group and they can't be easily separated and they often span across socioeconomic classes and ethnic groups. But they are very vulnerable because they are less likely to seek care and often need more care that addresses their challenges. They might be pressured not to go to the doctors. Usually we think about underserved as urban areas, but the rural population also encounters hardships that we usually don't think much about. First of all, they have physician shortages. When people graduate medical school and go to residency, they often do not go to work in rural areas unless they are from a rural area. I think the problem with this is that the vast majority of medical schools are not in rural areas and the vast majority of residency programs that you complete after medical school are not in rural areas. And by the time we get out of medical school and residency, we're usually in our late 20s, if not older, if we're non-traditional. And typically, medical graduates like to stay around where they're used to. So they will stay around where they did residency or they will move back home to wherever they're from. Of course, there are a lot of exceptions to that, but that's the general rule. So with all those factors taken together, rural populations really have a shortage of physicians. And when the number of physicians decreases, there's an increased travel time for patients living in rural areas to receive care. So they're also less likely to seek out that care, especially if it's for a healthy checkup or preventative care. They're not going to drive an hour just for that. So they're not going to get the vaccines they need. They're not going to get the screening they need. So typically that would mean that they develop illness more so than someone who is going to get healthy checkups regularly. The emergence of telehealth is a promising trend that may alleviate the gap in health provision at least a little bit. Patients living in rural areas also tend to be older, which means they're likely to have more chronic disease and age-related health problems that require even more medical attention with frequent follow-up visits. Rural populations tend to have increased rates of obesity, lack of exercise, and diets low in fruits and vegetables, which is really a sad irony to me. This probably contributes to the higher rates we see in rural areas of Things like hypertension, heart disease, cancer, and stroke. This episode of First Line is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn is an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. I decided to partner with TrueLearn because it is the only company I trusted for preparation for Comlex Level 1 and Level 2. Each TrueLearn SmartBank practice question has detailed answer explanations and succinct bottom lines to get the big learning takeaway. For my listeners taking the USMLE, TrueLearn also has an amazing USMLE SmartBank. If you are in your third year, TrueLearn also offers SmartBanks for shelf exams and COMAT shelf exams. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. I just started with my underserved rotation, which in my case is in a family medicine clinic. 
within a hospital and it's underserved because it is in a county that is over 75% rural and I have really enjoyed it so far. It definitely is a big switch from psychiatry, which was my first rotation last month. I really do enjoy it. There is a great diversity of patient presentations. I think that my first two years of medical school, learning in the school setting, going to lectures, we also had labs that taught us kind of these doctor skills, how to take a history, how to take a physical exam. And we actually had actors come in to pretend to be like patients. Obviously, they, they were healthy, so we couldn't really find anything wrong with them. But it was more of the practice of knowing what to say and going through the motions of different things in the physical exam. So I do know how to do all of this, but it is definitely... A different experience entirely to say okay you're going to see this patient and they have hypertension diabetes type 2 and they are morbidly obese go see them for their six-month checkup it is quite a different experience to just be told what people are coming in for and then you have to figure out what out of all that you learned do you actually want to use for this patient because you often have not even 15 minutes. There's just a lot of thinking in the moment about what questions are you going to ask that are specific for them, not just the list of questions you learned in medical school. And then you have to decide what part of the physical exam actually applies to this patient. So it's really having a focus exam is what is going to be a learning curve for me. And then I remember back when I started psychiatry rotation just last month and how new and different it felt and how over time I didn't by any means become an expert, but I sure got more comfortable. So I'm hoping that with time, this will ease a little bit. The first thing I learned is that most patients come in with a lot of medical issues. It is in no way like our mock patient encounters, like I mentioned, that we had to do the first two years of medical school, and it is certainly not like a question I would see on my board exams. Real people are much more complex than that, with complex backgrounds and needs. Asking the right questions is the first hurdle to get over. Then I have to decide what to specifically look at during the physical exam that reflects the answers to the questions that I asked. Then I have to decide what labs to get to investigate their problem even more if I need to. Then the next huge hurdle is what is going on and how the healthcare team can address it. So getting to a diagnosis or at least a theory of a diagnosis that we can look into a little bit more, still very much something that I need to continue to learn about is what to do with these patients. I can do physical exams and ask a million questions, but what are we going to do with it? And that that's really where the clinical expertise comes in. And that's the difference between a second year med medical student and a third year medical student is learning how to make a healthcare plan to reflect what is going on. So it's something that I'm really excited to learn and to practice really. Because I can do things by the textbook, but people are more complex than that. So I have to take into account 
a lot of different things and read up even more about how things are interrelated and how to address it when those things occur. That's definitely the biggest gap in my knowledge that I'm excited to gain insight through experience. I find that patients are very willing to talk with you if you ask them open-ended questions and then you don't need to think too hard to ask super pointed questions. You can kind of ask them how they are and then based off of that, go more in depth. You don't have to have really specific questions right from the start. They can kind of lead you based off of what their concerns are because again, it's a partnership really, that doctor-patient relationship that is so, so important. And the patient will likely reveal to you what you forgot to ask because they know themselves a lot better than you do. Seeing patients has fully reminded me why I started this podcast in the first place. I have a passion for education, whether it is sharing my experience with current and future medical students or teaching on important health issues, especially pertaining to preventative care. Unfortunately, most of the patients I see are in the position in which they have to do both lifestyle management and medication. Even more unfortunate is that they're often relying on their meds alone while also commonly sharing with me that they are taking too many meds or they don't want to be on any more meds. But the problem is that this is hard to do in a doctor's visit when we have a new patient every 15 minutes. I always make sure I ask patients about diet and exercise at the very least to get their minds thinking about diet and exercise. But there's not enough time for me to run through what their day looks like down to every choice they make even though every choice is important. This is where personal responsibility comes in and you are in control of it, no one else. A doctor can prescribe a medication to you and you can very well take it, but it is a struggle to treat by prescribing a better diet, especially since that is going to look very different person to person. In exercise, same deal. You have to find something you enjoy or you won't do it. Doctors can't prescribe you to go running every day if you're not going to do it. Hoping by the end of the rotation, I'm better able to address the patient's body, mind, and spirit in a holistic, osteopathic way. I did have a lot of patients with these chronic issues, and I would also add in habits like smoking and drinking too much alcohol. These lifestyle factors that are out of proportion to what healthy moderation is, they add up over time and they cause a lot of issues. A lot of our course materials for underserved medicine, we have modules that we have to do on top of our clinic hours. They're all about the social determinants of health, which some of you may not be familiar with what that really means. And some of you may have never heard of this. So I just wanted to kind of talk briefly about it because it's been on my mind a lot. So social determinants of health, there are factors that are usually quite out of our control. So this is something like your zip code, what kind of neighborhood you live in, whether it's a safe neighborhood or whether it has high crime rates. You can kind of think of how that could impact someone's stress levels. Also, you can think in terms of economic background. If you grew up in poverty, anyone can have stress over financial issues, but when you think of living in chronic poverty, you also think of things like not being able to pay for food. And even then, if you're able to put 
every meal on the table, maybe it's not quite healthy of a choice. What is interesting to me and what I've learned so far this rotation is that usually we think of poverty as being present in the inner cities, but poverty and poor socioeconomic status isn't limited to that. In fact, there is a lot more people in poverty that live in rural areas in America. And that is where you see the zip codes with the lowest median income is in these rural areas. It's harder for them to be able to travel to get healthcare because they're much more spread out. So you can kind of think of of inner cities, you're still able to go to a nearby emergency room if you need to. And those that encounter poverty a lot of times have to turn to going into the emergency room to receive care because they they can't afford that preventative health visits. But unfortunately, if you think about the rural population and how much more of an obstacle it is to travel to a hospital that has an emergency room, a lot of these communities only have a family medicine clinic and that might even be the town over and the nearest hospital might be an hour away. And there's rarely any public transportation options as well. So you can kind of think that poverty can exist in a lot of different places, but often we kind of forget about rural poverty. In my last year of my undergraduate college, I did a project and I was a biology and political science major. I thought it was a great idea to do my project on healthcare in rural areas. Really from a statistics point of view, I kind of analyzed which places were most underserved and if that lined up with being rural. It was really astonishing to see some of the patient-doctor ratios. How many of our doctors in the nation are just clustered in major cities? Then there are a lot in suburbs, but there's not a ton of physicians in rural areas. And what I also learned this month is that, unfortunately, the doctors that are in rural areas practicing, they are of the older age group, so they will be retiring soon, and we're not really seeing that demographic of doctors shift at all. Like, there's not really young physicians right after graduation going into these rural areas, despite there being state programs and national programs that incentivize physicians going into rural areas. And it's something I have been thinking about myself. If I am willing to go into a rural area, and I certainly am, however, most residencies seem like they are in cities because you need a certain type of infrastructure in your hospital to meet the requirements to have a residency program. I definitely see how fulfilling it would be to do full scope family medicine and take care of the whole person. You can imagine if there's any kind of economic factor or transportation factor, it's going to be a lot harder for them to not only see you in the clinic, but also a lot harder for them to pick up prescriptions and stay compliant to their medication. You can imagine the issues that could arise if they aren't able to get their medication and be compliant and how much of a risk that puts them at. 
can send me a voice message using the Anchor app. If you want to send me a comment, ask a question, or share any topic ideas that you want for an upcoming episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it if you take some time, just a minute of your time, to write a review. Hopefully it's five stars, but I really like honest reviews. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. I've completed my last day yesterday. Most of the patients that I have seen come in for six-month follow-ups of their chronic conditions. I see a similar situation time and time again. Of course, there was variability and they're unique people, but so similar that I can really speak generally here. So many patients come in and they have diabetes mellitus type 2, and it's caused by a combination of family history. They are genetically predisposed and also lifelong poor diet that is high in sugar, high in processed carbohydrates. Most of them tell me that they have a sweet tooth and they always have and they didn't really try to change their diet until they got the diagnosis either of borderline diabetes or some of them waited until they had the diagnosis of diabetes type 2. Some of them even waited until they started to lose sensation in their feet. I know I have people of all ages listening to this podcast, but I know I do have a lot of young people. It is never too early to think about how your diet is affecting your health in the long term because diabetes type 2 is very, very common, but that doesn't mean that it's not serious because so many people have it. It is very serious. Another point I want to make is that so many of these conditions coincide with each other. It's not just you have a poor diet, so that causes you to either be obese or diabetic or hypertensive. That's not how it works. A lot of times when you have a poor diet, it causes you to be obese. And because of that high caloric intake, a lot of it comes from sugar and processed carbohydrates, so then you are also diabetic. Then if you also have a very poor diet, it might be high in salt, and that also causes you to have hypertension, which causes so many other issues. And I see this time and time again, that patients come in diabetic, morbid obesity, with a BMI over 40. A lot of times they also have hyperlipidemia or dyslipidemia, which means their cholesterol is too high, their bad cholesterol is too high, their good cholesterol is too low, and all of these are interconnected, if not caused, heavily impacted by poor diet. Also, being sedentary is a huge issue. A lot of the patients that I see that have the triple, the hypertension, the diabetes, and the morbid obesity, they often tell me that they're not exercising. They know that they should, so 
it's not that they're uneducated and they don't know better, but they struggle to make the change in their life. They only come in to see the doctor every six months, which is more often than yearly well checkups if they didn't have any conditions, but the six-month follow-up is really just to monitor with labs, ask if they have any new issues that have come up, any new symptoms, maybe ask about diet and exercise. I know I always do when I see patients. I'm not sure if all doctors are doing that, and it leaves little time for me to really get at the root with what they're struggling with, but I'm trying to sort that out with how to use my time wisely because if they do have a new symptom, I have to focus on that. I have to give that the attention it deserves. But at the same time, I want to prevent them from having new symptoms come up in the future and with that, try to talk to them about their diet and their exercise routine and if they're getting enough sleep and if they are taking care of their mental health, reducing stress in their life, because all of this is important to longevity and health throughout their lives. Many of the patients I'm talking about that have this triple, this quadruple of morbid obesity, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, many of them are older because it takes time for these things to develop, but unfortunately, many of them are younger in their 40s. I haven't had a patient younger than that with those conditions yet, but I know that a lot of people get this younger. And it's because the American diet and diets in any developed country throughout the world, our diets are getting poorer and there's this dichotomy of either being on a diet or not being on a diet and not being on a diet leading to these conditions and being on a diet is heavily stigmatized and people feel like it is going to require them to completely be a different person and have to be super strict and never eat the foods that they love and that they're going to be like those health nuts on Instagram that do yoga and never eat good food. They only eat kale and they're following a keto diet or a vegan diet and so there there's just this societal pressure that there's only two sides of this and I think that really is a disservice and I hope that this podcast at least contributes to the conversation that making lifestyle changes doesn't have to be hard and you don't have to be perfect, but you owe yourself and you are worth it yourself. You are created by God that you should be trying to help yourself, whether you want to call it self-care or you want to call it taking care of yourself and seeing yourself as someone that is created by God, you you are worth every minute that you try to spend to improve yourself and improve your health. Whether your motivation is to stay alive, to be around your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, or whether you just want to live longer and fuller, travel the world, have time after retirement to pursue hobbies, Whatever motivates you to do that, I hope you just take some time to to think about that. 
go back and listen to my Prevention Starts Now episodes. That was really my motivation to start this podcast, to not only share my journey through medical school in my third and fourth years and beyond, but also to add to the conversation about how to be healthy and that it doesn't have to be hard, that anyone can do it, and to reach the people that don't listen to health podcasts usually because I am one of those people, but I am heavily motivated to be healthy as as a runner, as a medical student. I have a lot of motivation to be healthy now and to perform, but I know a lot of people don't have those motivations, especially early in life. You set your life up with the habits you put in place now because it's easier to put habits in place in your 20s, in your 30s, than trying to shift things around in your 50s when you have that that new borderline diabetes diagnosis and those elevated cholesterol levels that now you have to be put on a statin for. I hope you find that helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm on Instagram at First Line Podcast. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash firstlinepodcast. You can reach out for any questions, comments, suggestions, feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.